This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. My biggest concern at the moment is it's really in, in, in Eastern Africa. Joby Warwick, national security reporter for The Washington Post. It's rare, if ever, that I bring a national security correspondent on this show because that's what I do. But it's important to give credit where credit is due. And he's written a book, it's called The Red Line, The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most Dangerous Arsenal in the World. And then there's ISIS, which is not done yet. Because you see some ISIS affiliates, some groups that have pledged allegiance to ISIS, they have their own very independent, um, you know, local concerns, but they have become quite powerful and quite aggressive. And we just saw in the last couple of weeks uh, a very brazen attempt to take over, uh, you know, a city in Mozambique, uh, you know, a resort area, you know, dozens of people killed. Uh, so these groups are gaining strength in Africa, certainly. And then back in the heartland, you know, in particularly in, in eastern Syria, these guys never really went away. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. If you've read the Washington Post National Security section any time within the last 10 to 15 years, then you probably know the name Joby Warwick. He's written a new book. It's called Redline. The Unraveling of Syria and America's Race to Destroy the Most Dangerous Arsenal in the World. He's the winner of a Pulitzer Prize. He's also the author of Black Flags, which was about the rise of ISIS. Well, in this particular book, he uncovers some previously unknown details about the Obama administration's quest to find and shut down the pathway to some dangerous weapons. And we also learn that ISIS is not done yet. By a long shot. Joby, uh, red line, the unraveling of Syria and America's race to destroy the most dangerous arsenal in the world captivated me because I was reporting on the same stuff at the same time, although I didn't have the kind of access you did. But I'd like to start off with you uh, with this first question. What inspired you to write this book? What was it about this story that moved you to write this? Well, thanks so much for having me, JJ. And, you know, like you, I was covering some of the events at the time. And um, and like you, I have kind of a, a similar interest. I'm interested in terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, the Middle East, and, you know, those dangerous spots in the world. And this was a, a situation that brought all those elements together in, a, in almost a unique way. Because here you have this, this Arab Spring phenomenon, which we're all trying to figure out in 2011, 2012, You've got terrorist groups starting to move into the country and set up shop. You know, Al-Nusra at the time, uh, which was a 
an affiliate of al-Qaeda. You have this new thing called the Islamic State, which is starting to take over territory. And then you've got, in this country, unique in the region, a weapon of mass destruction. It's the only one of the Arab countries that had a, had WMD inside its borders. And this kind of WMD, it was a chemical weapon. There were uh, hundreds of tons of, of liquid chemical agents, like sarin, nerve uh, gas, stuff that it's extremely dangerous, very portable. It was so easy to imagine uh, you know, how some of this could have been taken outside the country. So even back, you know, in the early days of the Civil War, security officials were really concerned about what could happen in Syria if some of this stuff got out of control. And so my interest really started way back then trying to figure out, well, how did we stop what was potentially a different kind of disaster? Syria is a big enough disaster, but a a different one, a global disaster from taking place. And so really, this is the story of that, how we how we stop this uh, potentially horrific disaster from occurring. I want to ask first, how was that global disaster stopped? And secondly, was it actually stopped? Because this situation in Syria is continuing today. Yeah, exactly. And so and I'll take the second one first, because it, it's very important. I think listeners will, will, will be keying in on this as well. So we, we managed to, to get most of Syria's chemical weapons out of the country over a nine-month span between 2013 and 2014. And that was a hands-down success, the fact that we were able to get most of the stuff out. But we weren't able to get it all. Uh, and we surely didn't change Assad's behavior. He continued to, to use uh, chemical weapons. He switched to sort of a, a poor man's chemical weapon, which is chlorine. Uh, later on in 2017 and 18, he uses it again. So he didn't he didn't learn a lesson. There was no real accountability. And because of that, the, the danger continues, because when you don't change someone's intent, uh, sooner or later, they'll, they'll do something like this again. But, you know, the, the story of how it was removed, you know, we can we can talk about this, you know, over the program, but it was it was really kind of a once in a in a in a, in a million opportunity when you have a, a chemical weapon stockpile that the Syrians didn't even admit to having. And suddenly, because of crazy events, this terrible attack that happens in 2013 and, and political decisions, you know, all led to this deal that was cut in 2013 that allowed the weapons to be taken out. There was only a nine-month window. That's all the time we had to remove an entire production system and stockpile and then to take it out of the country somehow while a war was happening. And then once you get it out, how, what do you do with it? How do you destroy 1,300 tons of chemical weapons that no country in the world wants to, to accept. No country wants to get that terrible stuff coming into their, their port. So this is really um, the heart of the story of how, how this all came together in, in a remarkably short period of time. Did President Obama make a mistake? Because one of the early developments, once this situation regarding um, Bashar al-Assad's uh, possession of these chemical weapons and that he was threatening to use, President Obama warned that he was going to cross a red line if he did. So Assad went ahead and did it. Um, and not a lot took place on the U.S. from the U.S. Uh, as a result of U.S. activity. Did, did the president at the time make a mistake? Well, it's certainly one of the most controversial foreign, foreign policy decisions or events of, of Obama's presidency. This the sense that he he kind of threw down the gauntlet. He sort of challenged Syria: if you use these weapons, we're gonna we're gonna make you pay. And then uh, there was a, you know, several small incidents, and there was no real response, or at least no public response. 
the book gets into some responses that were behind the scenes, which were, which were quite dramatic. And then this huge attack takes place in 2013, and, and the president is again confronted, well, what do we do about this? The line has been crossed, and shouldn't we strike Syria? And what the book does, it, it sort of, without taking a side and with being as just straight up and nonpartisan as, as one could possibly be in the situation, is try to understand and get deep inside what the decision making was like and how complicated things were. And these early attacks, there's, you know, this kind of pinprick attacks took place in early 2013. Sometimes only a single person would die or two or three people would die. And that's up against the backdrop of, of all kinds of carnage that's happening in, in Syria. So there's a question of, well, do we get involved militarily because a couple of people are being killed by one particular kind of weapon when you know we're ignoring or not really doing anything about all these others? So that that's a debate and a controversy that, ha- that takes place within the, the Obama administration. And then later on, when they're confronted with this, this huge uh, atrocity, 1,400 people killed in a single attack in the outskirts of Damascus, the president... Uh, wants to strike. And I I did deep reporting in this to to understand what the debate was like within the Oval Office. And everyone was prepared for a strike. The the, the military equipment was getting into place. Um, And and yet there were things that slowed the president down, one of which was this kind of specter of false intelligence about WMD leading the United States into a war that had happened pretty famously in Iraq. So there was real concern about making sure the intelligence case was ironproof ironclad rather, and and something that could be presented to the American people, that we know that uh, Assad used chemical weapons and killed these people, and here's the evidence, and here's why we're going to strike. But there were other problems too. The British were going to go along with us, and then the British decided they weren't going to. Parliament shut it down. There was a team of UN inspectors, fact finders on the ground in Syria who were looking at evidence, and there was fear that they could be held hostage or that it just looked bad to launch a strike while you have fact finders collecting the evidence on the ground. So the president slows down, he kind of decides to take his time, and then he makes a fateful decision to go to Congress because he thought, the argument was that if I'm going to do this, I should have Congress come with me. And so he asked Congress and Congress said, no, we're not interested. Yeah, you know, looking at this, you know, I remember reading this particular uh, story where he took this long walk with, Mm -hmm. um, um, I believe it was Dennis McDonough or Ben Rhodes, maybe it was McDonough, that he took the long walk with uh, through uh, the gardens on the on the White House lawn, and you know one of the questions that came up uh, as he was debating what to do was, "What if we bombed Syria?" You know, and and then they re- they did it again using more chemical weapons. Um, um, so yeah, it was very clear it was a hard decision for him to make, and a part of the reason folks who listen to this podcast know that we don't do a whole lot of reporting or interviews with journalists because that's what we're supposed to be doing. But the work that Joby Warwick does is exceptional, and this is one of the reasons why, because when I read this book and I read this piece, I realized that this was a gut-wrenching decision that he had to take. And then when he went to Congress and Congress said no, I kind of wondered, was he relieved or was was it worse for him? What, What did you come away with? Yeah, well, at the moment, it was excruciating because in in the cabinet, there was almost everybody believed that Congress would ultimately go along. And, and the president was saying, look, as a candidate, you know, throughout my presidency, I've been saying that presidents shouldn't go to war unilaterally. We should have the country united. We should bring Congress into this. 
And then they started kind of beating the bushes and asking Congress for support. And Democrats and Republicans alike refused to give it to them. So that was that moment that that, that really was um, brought everything to a screeching halt. But but, you know what? There was another objective uh, and, and it gets lost in the discussion. So it wasn't just about punishing Syria or. Uh, you know, making the United States look tough. There was another important objective, which was doing something about this stockpile, which the Americans have been really worried about. The reason the red line statement happened in the first place, it wasn't just a, a, a glib uh, statement uh, necessarily. It was a response to real intelligence that was coming in in the summer of 2012 that Assad was getting ready to do something with those chemical weapons. And the fear was, and the Israelis were completely convinced of this, was that he was going to give them away. That part of that stockpile was going to go to Hezbollah, this militia group next door in Lebanon, which has something like 10,000 rockets and missiles pointed at Israel. If that had happened, it would have been an absolute catastrophe for the region. And so you see Obama and Clinton and everyone kind of running out, having private meetings with the Russians, the Iranians, and also saying four times publicly, don't do this, don't move the weapons. This will be a red line for us. And so the, the reason it was couched in those terms was because it was it was everyone recognized that if those weapons got out of control or were given away, it could be one of the, the, the greatest disasters of, of the young century. And, and that's really a, a big part of the backstory of this. And it's a, quite a story. Joby, what was the biggest thing you learned or the most important thing you learned while writing, researching and putting this book together? Well, there are so many things, um, you know, when you spend get to spend the time that I was able to spend nearly two years and you know hundreds of interviews and, and all kinds of records and documents, you know, how many close calls of various kinds there were and how, for example, you know, multiple times, you know, the bad guys, the folks with, with terrorist affiliations came close to these, these stockpiles where they were held. Um, in one, one place in the desert of Eastern Syria, they, they besieged, um, you know, a military base. They had enough sarin to fill a small swimming pool. And it was just remarkable that they didn't succeed in getting it. And then later on, you see, you know, after the, the, the most of the weapons are taken out of the country, ISIS gets the idea. You know, if, if you're all about trying to make a splash internationally with, with a terrorist strike, what would be more effective than, than chemical weapons? It couldn't steal Assad's weapons, so it decided to make its own. And so a big chunk of the book goes into that that process and how far they got and how they managed to to make some things uh, in the laboratory facilities they had in Iraq before they were stopped. All of that, plus just how precarious the mission was of, of extracting and destroying those 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 weapons. It was incredibly complicated, very dangerous. And several times it almost completely fell apart. And, and the fact that it succeeded uh, in hindsight was was near on miraculous, I think. Well, it certainly sounds that way from listening to you recount how this all came together and some of the nuances of the reporting. You know, it's, it's not escaped on me and I'm sure the audience as well as we listen to you talk about how you did all this. Uh, you know, and, and one of the interesting parts about this, too, that I'm not sure a lot of people realize is that and you've sort of touched on this, is that ISIS was about to make its big break. That ISIS's big moment was about to come. And I'm wondering, were there any telltale signs as you put together, you know, the research that you were doing in the run up to uh, this book? Were there any telltale signs that ISIS was about to emerge? Hmm. So there were certainly signs that this group was regaining strength because the real backstory with ISIS, and I get into this in my earlier book, Black Flags, 
is this was an organization that had been around since the early 2000s. It had really flowered during the Iraq War from 24 to 2004 to 2006 under this guy Abu Musab al sarqawi um, and and so you know they're experienced diplomats, people who knew the background of this organization and how ruthless it was. And they became very worried when they see this this group come into Syria, a lawless vacuum, a place where they could take over territory, and then do exactly that: seize cities, seize banks, seize universities, and then start to command this incredible influx of foreign fighters, tens of thousands from around the world to come and help them out. And you know, in the sanctuary of the caliphate, they they tried to do a lot of things. They had access to the kinds of facilities that any terrorist organization would dream of having, yeah. including universities and chemical labs. How about and that's why it, billion, it occurred to them, let's, let's make bombs. How about a billion dollars, too? <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, you know, entire bank vaults for, full of currency, you know, gold that were just hauled off by these guys. And, and, and some of it never recovered. It's still believed that that uh, ISIS, its continuing uh, leadership, has more than enough money than it needs to reconstitute if it gets an opportunity. That's a part of what I want to do at this moment is to step away from the book just for a brief moment, uh, regress back to Black Flags and take a look at where we are now and where we're going with this group. We keep hearing that ISIS is returning or resurging. Uh, what What is your reporting or what what are you learning about that? It's not a small worry, and it depends on where you look. But my my biggest concern at the moment is is really in 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 Eastern Africa and and also on the on the west on the western side as well, because you see some ISIS affiliates, some groups that have pledged allegiance to ISIS. They have their own very independent, um, you know, local concerns, but they have become quite powerful and quite aggressive. And we just saw in the last couple of weeks uh, a very brazen attempt to take over. Uh, you know, a city in Mozambique, uh, you know, a resort area, you know, dozens of people killed. Uh, so these groups are gaining strength in Africa, certainly. And then back in the heartland, you know, in, particularly in, in eastern Syria, these guys never really went away. They, they After the caliphate collapsed, you know, we think tens of thousands of soldiers or fighters survived and simply melted back into villages. Uh, found hiding places, and they continue to carry out attacks at a fairly regular pace. You see, you know, weekly attacks in Iraq and and in Syria, both by a group that has patience. It's not uh, not uh, necessarily going to come back with the caliphate next week, but it continues to kind of you know keep its powder dry and look for opportunities. And in places where there are local grievances, where there's government failures, where there's sort of stateless vacuums. That's where these groups move in and start to uh, to reemerge. And I think there's that potential in Syria and Iraq, particularly in Syria and the East right now. So right now, is the U.S. military and uh, its allies and other countries, uh, are, are they taking this uh, as seriously as they should? Um, because what I hear you saying is that this thing that took place in Mozambique uh, a few weeks back, uh, is sort of emblematic of what took place in, in Iraq, uh, I think, when, when ISIS exploded onto the scene. They just kind of came out of nowhere uh, and just, you know, locked everything down. And I'm not sure that that's what took place in the city in Mozambique, but it certainly shows that they can po- possibly do something like that. The question is, um, do they have the resources to reconstitute in a place outside of the Middle East? Mm. You know, what we've seen with this group in Mozambique in particular is its ability to 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 not just seize, but to, to retain power, at least temporarily. 
A few months ago, they seized another town and held it for months, and, and local security forces were not able to to reclaim the town until till really weeks and weeks of of, of fighting and, and slowly regaining territory. So that that speaks to the power and and the staying power of these groups. And these are difficult areas for Americans to operate in. They're not, you know, these are not easy governments for us to work with. In some cases, they don't necessarily invite our help. Or or, uh, or if we provide resources, they're not necessarily used in a proper way. So it, it's it's a tough predicament for the United States. I do think there is a commitment. Um, I think this is a bipartisan thing. It's it's continuing through, uh, you know, um, both both administrations that we've just had. But it's a sense that if we don't, if we aren't proactive, if we don't at least empower local forces and bring our intelligence and other um, technical assets to bear. Some of these countries could be in real trouble, and we're going to end up with an Iraq situation or a Syria situation all over again. And I, I do think we're we're a bit overextended at the moment. We're preoccupied with with COVID and rebuilding, you know, the, the economy and and all these other things. But these problems in the on the periphery in places like Mozambique can't be allowed to fester because if they do, we could have a much bigger situation in the, in the future. And you can see terrorist groups beginning to again export their ideology and perhaps uh, terrorist weapons and operatives to to our country. It, it's happened before. And this is a part of the reason why talking to you is so important. Um, this book, um, your reporting has always been a, a reliable continuum of what's taking place, connecting us to the past, today, and the future. And with this activity taking place in that part of of, of Africa, and certainly ISIS, as you mentioned, held on to quite a bit of the money that it had uh, and continued with, as you mentioned as well, some of those people that just never went away, they sort of melted into those cities, um, starting now to, to, to coalesce again. And this situation in Syria is continuing. So is there going to be, will there be another ISIS central, or will there be most likely uh, a decentralized movement? I think that you know it's interesting, and I know you 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 see this chatter as as I do, JJ, where where you you hear the jihadists talking about these things in their chat rooms, and and there are groups that take that information and, and translate it and make it available to, so you can see what they're saying. And there's a sense that that ISIS, the caliphate, overreached, and that in trying to control territory, it, it managed to 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 be able to gain certain things, but it, it also made itself a, a more obvious target. So if you have real estate, you have an address. Uh, you know, lots of big planes could come after you. So you might, I think, see you know a more sophisticated and kind of a hybrid approach where there's uh, where there's de facto control over over certain areas where they can do as they will. Um, you know, take over towns during the during the night and then maybe slink away during the day, but have local populations under their control and build a base. And I think that's the model we're seeing play out in Africa, and it may be that what we see elsewhere. And that remains dangerous because, as we know, Al Qaeda never tried to, to to build a state. I mean, it took advantage of of you know a host, the Taliban in Afghanistan, and were allowed to do what they pleased, but they didn't try to take over territory. So you don't necessarily have to have a caliphate to be quite dangerous and to be an international threat. And that I'm afraid we're moving to something like that now. Well, the last thing I'll ask you on this, uh, Joby, a returning back to the book uh, and uh, doing this to get some sense of uh, where the book leaves us uh, for the audience uh, who will go out and get this book, because if you can only buy one book this year, this is the book to buy. Um, 
what is it that this book, where does this book leave us? Where does this book leave the story? Where does it, how does it connect to where we are now and where we're going? Well, I'm, I'm afraid it's a bleak picture. And I, I kind of, I, I, that's unfortunate about, it seems, all the books that I do. That, that But it's it, okay. It, I get that every day about my reporting. Some people make a joke about the fact that I scare them all the time. But, you know, yeah. bleak doesn't matter to us. We'd prefer, and you know this as well because we've talked about it, we'd prefer the truth to happy talk, right? <laughs> that's absolutely right. And we have to do to be realistic about what, what's happening in the world. And as much as we'd like to ignore problems like Syria, eventually they become problems for us too. And I think that's part of the lesson of the book is that this small, this, you know, uprising in a country that a lot of Americans could not pick out on a map became such a, a huge international event because this is where, you know, ISIS got its legs again. This is where, you know, these massive refugees, uh, you know, flows came that swept into Europe and destabilized governments. Um, you know, all this destabilization coming from a, from a place that, um, that we're not that familiar with. And, 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 and in, hindsight, in hindsight, we have to ask ourselves what might have been done differently to, 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 to keep this thing from spiraling out of control. So, so that's one issue. And I think the other is just that, um, that we, have to, we have to be on our game on so many different levels. And it's, you know, it, diplomatically is, is a huge part of it. We have to, to be engaged diplomatically, but, you know, have our, our forces ready, have our own defenses ready. It's a dangerous world. And and uh, including on you know this this WMD threat, which is a real one, um, it doesn't have to be a group like ISIS. It could be a domestic group. So we have to be very vigilant about that problem too, because it doesn't take a whole lot uh, in terms of material to create a, a really bad situation in, in say a, a subway station or a ballpark or someplace like that where crowds are gathered, where where these guys could do a lot of damage if they get an opportunity. And one final thing I just just have to to bring up is is the issue of accountability because as as I mentioned before, the people who committed the chemical crimes in Syria, Assad and his regime, have never been brought to justice. And you know I think it's important, even though it seems like it's an impossible challenge at this point, to to keep trying to build a case and to eventually make these guys have their day in court. You know, in the Balkans, it took 20 years to bring some of the the, the key leaders to, to justice, but it eventually happened, and one has to hope that it's going to happen in Syria one day as well. Yeah, that's a really uh, good point that you're making. Uh, you know, we have to keep our eyes on this on this and and have to stay focused on this as time passes and look at look at it against uh, the backdrop of things continuing to change, you know, and adapting to to meet the, the, the challenges and the threats. I mean, granted, we don't have the problems that we had several years ago. Um, well, bottom line, during the last administration, the dysfunction to deal with, the, mm -hmm. the uh, military and the government and everyone are on the same page now, but so much was lost so much ground was lost during the course of the last few years that uh, making it up might be problematic, but mm. we'll see what happens. But um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, anything you want to add that I didn't ask you about that you think is important? Well, I'll just have to insist to readers that I didn't tell you to make that book plug, but I really appreciate it. I, I hope it's a it's an interesting read for people, and, and I really appreciate the chance to be on the show to talk about it. Yeah, well, I think you've been on the program before, so people know that Target USA, we have an affinity for good reporters, uh, and like I said, we don't have them on often, 
you know, and whenever we do, it's got to be something good and solid, and you're always that guy. So thank you. Thank you, JJ. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ben. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, perhaps one of the biggest stories of the last 50 years. Was an American president a Russian asset? It was my agency and it was specifically my department who started cultivating Donald Trump uh, since about 1970. You heard that right. And you heard it from Yuri Shvets. He's a former KGB agent who now lives in the United States. And he's talking. Eventually, it led to close cooperation between the intelligence agency and Mr. Trump. Schwetz is featured in a new book by Craig Unger called American Compromise. I think Americans are, are, we are in the middle of an unseen war, an invisible war. That war, according to Unger, is with Russia and the unseen assets that are a part of what he calls American Compromise. That's coming up on our next episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email to jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. Also, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at wtop.com slash alerts. And also, you can follow our podcast on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And of course, we invite you to subscribe to Target USA. Thank you for listening. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Season 2 of WTOP's American Nightmare series, Murder in a Safe Place, is more than a podcast. It's an active police investigation. With tips from this podcast now actively being investigated by police, the murder of Sherry Crandall has never been closer to being solved. Listen from the beginning to the podcast rated in Apple's Top 200. I'm D.C. crime reporter Paul Wagner. Join me for an American Nightmare podcast series, Murder in a Safe Place, a WTOP production. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Now. Stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.